this is uh, fun for me because last week we we ended our series in First John and we uh, took a I think a very in-depth look at John's letter to the churches around Ephesus and it's a great time as we walked out of the Abide series and we're starting a brand new series this week. Um, that we call Bar Napkin Discipleship, or Bar Napkin, the Bar Napkin Gospel. If you've been around our church for any period of time, and uh, even if you walked in this morning, you see our vision. We try to make sure that everyone who comes to our church understands what our vision is. And it's, it's really simple. It's, it's life in Christ for every Alaskan and the world beyond. It's our vision. And we believe that our vision starts with the people that are around us in our inner circle, our circles of influence. And then it, it extends what we believe uh, it will extend where, where God will send us as he sends us to the nations. So it extends to the whole world. And we desire that everyone experiences a rich relationship with God and, and, and a sense of purpose and belonging that Jesus gives to us when we draw our lives from him. When we draw our lives from Jesus, it honors him, it, it completes and satisfies us, and it does a good work in the world, and it creates a rich, thick life that's full of meaning and, and full of wonder. But what does life in Christ mean practically? How do you live that out? It's a profound idea, I think, and, and, um, and I think that it really begins with, with pursuit. We can pursue life in Christ for a lifetime and never fathom the depth of what that actually means for us. It's a simple idea. So simple that anyone can begin the pursuit of it, but yet it's profound. Most profound things are really, really simple. Take for granted, or take for uh, example, great art. This appears to be a photograph. It's art by an artist, a well-known artist by named Dirk Derminski. But it's not a photograph. This is a piece of art that was drawn using nothing but graphite pencils and chalk. Amazing, isn't it? And Dirk writes of his art, he says, I choose drawing over painting as this allows me to create many layers over layers of lines and dots which react to each other in order to create a vibrant texture with directions and movement. This approach enables the finished work to be viewed more by the senses as opposed to the standard visual observation of a photo. It's art. Great art accomplishes this. On the surface, everyone can see great art and enjoy it, but yet something about it draws us deeper. Great art has, has gravity to it. it. It pulls you into its glory. And the more we see it, the more we love it. And the more we love it, the more we see in it. So our goal for the next five weeks is to expose you to life in Christ in its simplest form, to stimulate you to 
go, to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ, to let the gravity of that relationship pull you into it deeper and deeper. Our desire is to show you how to describe what life in Christ looks like in its simplest form, using a, a simple bar napkin to explain it. Now, let me make this disclaimer to you, family. Pastor Greg did not say grab a bunch of bar napkins and go out to the bar and spread the gospel. All right? Not saying that if that's what you want to do, if God calls you that, do that. But I'm not, I'm not telling you to do that, all right? No, what I'm saying is a bar napkin um, is, is, is a little square of paper. And, and, and every, everything is called a bar napkin. I mean, if you go to a coffee shop, they give you that little square. They don't call it a coffee napkin. They call it a bar napkin. Okay, it's something very, very simple. Some of the greatest and most profound, uh, uh, profound ideas and concepts in life, life-changing concepts began with a scribble on a bar napkin. So I want you to invite, I want to invite you to join me at the coffee shop over the next five weeks as we talk about the greatest idea the world has ever known. The idea that God has offered us life, abundant and satisfying life in Jesus Christ. So to begin our series, we're going to begin where we should, and that's with the gospel. The good news, that's what gospel means. It means, it means the good news. The good news that God loves us with a, with a relentless, everlasting love. Remember I told you in John, it's an uncommon, unconditional, supernatural love. And we were created in him to enjoy that relationship of love and the abundant life that that relationship is supposed to bring us. And I'm convinced, looking at the gospel, that God will stop at absolutely nothing to call us into that relationship. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 and 6 says this. Paul writes, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is our pathway to relationship with our creator. So when explaining the gospel, we, we need to go back to the beginning. We go back to the nature of God. And we can learn and know a lot about God just by looking at the things around us. It's easy for us to observe the world around us and, and just pick up little things about who God is. Well, first, especially in Alaska, we can look at the world around us and know that God is creative. He's creative, and he appreciates diversity. Look around, look around the, the congregation here. Look at this family. God appreciates diversity. He's powerful. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's majestic, and he's beyond comprehension. In the gospel message, there are three specific things about God's nature that, that if we're not careful at first glance, we'll, we'll miss in the world around us. And the first thing is that God is good. God is good. It's one of the first concepts that we're introduced to in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 where the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep. 
goes on to say how at the end of each day, God said, oh, that was good. That was good. And it was an expression of the goodness of God, just who he is. In fact, all throughout the Bible, the goodness of God is expressed. If you turn in your Bibles to to Exodus, the 34th chapter, I want to show you just one expression. Exodus 34, chapter 34, verse 6. And Moses writes this, and this is the Lord speaking. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, here's the Lord now, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. God is good. In this passage, we see three things. First, we see that God is gracious, and he's patient, and he's steadfast in love. And this passage also says that God is merciful. And mercy speaks to the idea of compassion. Compassion is the quality of understanding weakness and, and understands what it means to forgive offenses. Mercy chooses to love, watch this now, mercy chooses to love when it has every reason not to love. So God is merciful, but notice the other characteristic that's, that's in this passage. Verse 7, keeping the steadfast love of thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the other characteristic of God is that God is just. He simply cannot overlook guilt. And though God, God loves mercy, he's also committed to justice. He cannot simply overlook guilt and pretend that it doesn't exist because if he did, then he would not be good. Guilt and, 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 and justice are forensic terms. I told you guys last week, I really love that show Law and Order. I mean, I could, man, I love me some law and order, y'all. Pray for the pastor. But they're forensic terms, and they have to do with law. Law is, is what orders society. Law allows us to live together peacefully and in harmony in secure relationships. When we are guilty, we break the law. We are just when we apply the, apply the laws that, that protect us and the penalties that come with the law. We're just when we apply that equally without partiality. To govern without justice is not good. Let me, let me use this, this illustration. Say there's two parents and they have two children, right? And there's a rule in your house, a law in your house that says, come to dinner when I call you. You have 10 minutes, 10-minute rule. And if you fail to come to dinner after 10 minutes, then, then you forfeit your right to eat. 
no dinner. Ten minutes to arrive, right? Now, that's the prescribed penalty. The prescribed penalty for breaking or transgressing the law is no dinner. So, so, so say now one of the children comes down and uh, say it's your son. I can identify with that. Say it's your son, and they, they, they come down like 11 minutes late, you know. But the law says you're late, you know it, no dinner. So they forfeit dinner. But say there's, a, there's another child that comes down, your other child, and it's a daughter. Maybe she's been playing around on the iPod or the iPad, whatever they have today, and they're playing with, and, you know, and they come down just 12 minutes late, right after the sun leaves. And say, for example, you know, they, she's smooth and eloquent in speech and has daddy wrapped around her little finger, right? And so, and so she gives an excuse and dad and mom give in and they let her go. What would you think about that kind of parenting? Here's what you would think. It's, it's not just. It's not good. It's not just if the law doesn't apply equally without partiality, is it? To enforce the law without mercy also is not good. It wouldn't be good to have your kids come down and sit down at the table if they're 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes late and then, and then say to them, well, you know what, you can't eat, but now you got to watch me eat these smooth barbecue ribs. Your favorite kind. That would be merciless, wouldn't it? Shows no compassion. It's not good. Mercy identifies with and wants to relieve the child's hunger, but justice, justice now, cannot give them dinner. Can't. And don't miss this. Both mercy and justice are part of God's goodness. They're governed by God's goodness. And so this good and merciful and just God creates mankind to share his nature. The Bible tells us that God forms man from the dust of the ground, breathes into him the very essence of his spirit, pneuma. And man became a living soul, the Bible says. In his image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in his goodness, he gave them full provision and full protection and purpose. Then in his mercy, he gave them one another because he looked down, he saw a man, he said, you know what, it's not good for that rascal to be alone, to walk around just messing stuff up. So I'll make her helper that's suitable, suitable for him in his goodness and in his mercy. And then in his justice, he gave them the law. Here's what he said. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not partake of that fruit, right? And I believe it was God's desire to give mankind the fruit all along. I believe it was his desire to, to reveal knowledge and good and evil to man. But he wanted to do it his way. I believe God was saying, I want you to trust me to give it to you when I need to give it to you and not before you can handle it. I think that God wanted them to learn trust through obedience and faith and not take life their way. God says, if you do, the penalty for that will be death. Well, you know the story. 
Mankind decided that, that he didn't want to trust God, and he made a self-centered choice and reached out and took the fruit by the force of his own strength and the force of his, force of his own will. Didn't trust God to give it to him through faith and through obedience. So it brings a point. There, there are two ways, really, to know the difference between good and evil. There's faith, and that's doing things God's way and trusting him. And then, and then there's force, taking it by the force of your own will. And I'm going to tell you something. We're so prone to do that as human beings, not waiting on God and not trusting him. But it forces the question, how's that worked out for you? Well, you know, man, mankind chose to do it their way when they broke one of God's laws and in that became guilty. And the penalty for their guilt was death, eternal death, separated from God. Because mankind chose to trust his own instincts and his own ability and rejected the direction of God, they became helpless and unable to do anything about the guilty position that they found themselves in. Helpless and guilty. Two words that describe every single one of us and the things that go on on the inside of us, aren't they? We know we're not guilty because our hearts aren't right. We have thoughts that we're ashamed of. And no matter how often we try to take those thoughts captive, they still keep coming. We have habits that we don't want anybody else to know. We've sworn that, that we've done things that we've sworn that we would never do. And then we carry the fear of what it's going to mean to stand before God in the things that we've done. We're not right, and we know it. It's, it's inherent in each one of us. But we also know that we're basically helpless to do anything about it. We, we, we've tried to control those thoughts, but the more you try to control those thoughts, the more the thoughts begin to come, and it leads to shame. We tried to break those habits, and sometimes we even tried to do things to, to make up for the things that we've done, but the more we strive, the more insecure we, we begin to feel. We're separated from the very God that gives us life, and we're lost. We're lost because of that separation. Trying to do things our way seems in the moment satisfying and fulfilling. But it'll fail every time. Because only God can give us life. So our sins put, it, put us in a, in a dilemma. But we're not in that dilemma alone because God feels that dilemma. He felt that dilemma with us. Because God is just, he must judge sin. Because God is merciful, he longs to help us, help us in our helplessness and, and restore us to relationship with him. But the penalty for sin is death. So the price required to restore us to relationship with God is also death. Justice demands death. But we obviously can't pay that price for ourselves and still experience restoration. We only have a guilty life to live. And once you're dead, in this life, you're dead. 
See, we cannot in our own self satisfy justice and live. Someone who is not guilty and helpless has to satisfy justice on our behalf. And that's the reason for the cross. That's the reason for Jesus Christ. God becomes a man. God incarnate in the flesh. Lives a righteous life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Perfect, spotless, sinless. Offers his life as a sacrifice. And his righteousness becomes a substitution for our death. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. You see, the cross is the gospel. And in that is God's solution to our dilemma. What justice demanded God's mercy provided on the cross. In Jesus, God paid himself what his law demanded. God surrendered himself on the cross to pay the sacrifice for our sin. He did it in his mercy, and he did it also to satisfy his justice. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul writes this. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there is no distinction, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God has put forward as the propitiation in that word simply means ransom or atonement by the propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God paid the price on the cross. And so from now on, when you, when you encounter people who say, you know, I don't believe that God is a God of judgment, that he would condemn me and condemn others to hell, eternal separation. I want you to respond to them by saying this, to this then to them. Then you don't believe in a God that's full of mercy and rich in love. You don't believe that because it's only God's mercy and only in his mercy can he provide for the justice that he demands. It's only when we come to admit that we're lost and we grieve the fact that the guilt of our sin keeps us separated from God that we can experience his mercy and his grace, and his steadfast love. And if you decrease the demand for God's justice, then you decrease the provision of his mercy in Jesus Christ. Everybody say the gospel. This is the gospel. So what do I do? The Bible is clear. 
the first thing we need to do is confess. To confess our sins, to admit our need for his righteousness. And then the next thing we need to do is repent. Repent simply means to turn, to turn away from something and to turn towards something else. To confess and to repent and to turn away from our stubborn, independent way of wanting to do things in submission to his way and trust in his leadership. And then we have to believe to take hold of the gospel, the good news that promises life to anyone who will draw their life from relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I confess that my righteousness is worthless and that I need Jesus, I'm given his righteousness. A righteousness is earned by him and given to me by grace. The Bible tells us this, that our righteousness, our righteousness on our best day, family, is as filthy rags. It doesn't matter if we've been serving Jesus for 50 years or for 50 minutes. The best of our righteousness is filthy in the sight of God. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, he's only going to ask us one question. One question. Whose righteousness do you bring me? And if we say, well, God, I brought you, I'm bringing you my righteousness. Didn't I do all these good and wonderful things in your name? Look at, look at how good I've been and how long I've lived for you. It's not going to be enough. As I repent of my own self-centeredness and, and turn and depend on Jesus, what he gives me in that moment as I do that is he fills me with the resurrection power, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells on the inside of me. And Jose, you can bring your team up. And as I believe in Jesus, and as I embrace the gospel, and as I submit and surrender in obedience to his teaching and his leadership, and as I trust him, relationship with him is restored. And I begin to grow in the life that I was created to enjoy in him. And I, I get to experience that in abundance. A life that's full of God's goodness and his mercy and his justice. You know, it's, it's very important when we kick off any message series that we begin with a solid foundation. And the solid foundation for this Bar Napkin Gospel series is the gospel. And so I intentionally took my time today to unpack the gospel story. Because the gospel story is life. And as we embrace the gospel story, we get to enjoy life in Christ. And so today what I want to do is I want to invite you into that life. I want to invite you into a rich, meaningful relationship with Jesus. Will you stand to your feet?
I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward and line the stage. And listen, you may be here and maybe your relationship with Jesus Christ is rocking, that's great, but maybe there's somebody beside you whose relationship is not. And maybe there's somebody that you know whose relationship is not. Now is the time for you to begin to get a visual image in your mind of that person. Maybe it's a lost loved one. And in these next few moments, begin to pray for them. Or maybe there's someone beside you and you, you sense in your spirit that God is doing something in their life, maybe at work, and God prompts you in the spirit to turn to that person and begin to pray with them. Now's the time to do that. Perhaps you're here for the first time and you've never really heard the gospel message before. You really didn't understand God's mercy and his justice and how it's all part of his goodness to you. And you want to experience that goodness and that mercy. I'm telling you, if you're feeling that, if you're sensing that, that's not your own heart talking to you. That's the spirit of God moving on your heart now. Now is the time to make a decision for Jesus Christ. So if you fit any one of those categories, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. You, do, you can if you want. But you can embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ right there at your seat right now by yourself. If you're willing to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life and I submit my life to your authority right now. And you know what? I don't even know what that fully looks like, but I'm willing to do that. 